Welcome to Late Night with White. I'm your host, C.D. White, and it's the end of February. Hopefully you were well-loved on Valentine's Day and got all the things that you deserve. And if nothing else, you were good to yourself, because that's important as well. It is storming and snowing in California. We've got outages and blizzards in the north. Here in the south, it's relatively warm. One of the warmest Februarys we've had uh, in the last hundred years. So we are still living in very interesting times. Still living in very interesting times. So tonight... What I have been thinking about and what's on my mind is um, the idea of movies as text. And so you lit heads out there, you guys are not only well read, but you you watch a lot of good cinema. You probably subscribe to the Criterion channel, Turner Classic Movies. You are uh, independent, independent film channel uh, things. You are looking at film noir. You're looking at early movies. You're watching the arc and the development of the medium because it's a feast for those of us who like to read, especially when we get to see short texts and longer works rendered on the silver screen. There's nothing like it. And of course, we face a lot of us that disappointment when the live version doesn't quite meet our expectations. But we both know that it's hard for a movie to capture everything that's in a novel or even a short story. It's just really hard. Um, but yet when we view movies as text, they have a lot to say. They have a lot of commentary on our modern day experiences and on the evolution of our political world, of our um, ethnic and racial tolerances, of our gender norms, and, you know, the dealing with all kinds of large, heavily wrought text and subtext, right? So today, I wanted to bring to your attention, and you probably have seen it, uh, a really great movie, one that's really resilient and resonant for our times, called A Face in the Crowd. A Face in the Crowd. So just a little bit of background about this movie. It stars um, Andy Griffith in one of his first roles. You know, he was well-known before Matlock, before uh, Mayberry, 
he was well known for his comedy. And I've listened to his old comedy records. They're pretty good. They're smart. They show a lot of talent. And so um, he gets this role of Lonesome Rhodes in A Face in the Crowd. Lonesome Rhodes is a ne'er-do-well, hard-on-its-luck, but uh, talented, folksy, everyman persona who's plucked for his good luck and turned into a radio and then television phenom. And the movie is directed by Kazan. It's a 1957 movie and was written by Brad Schulberg. And so these two had partnered before. Um, Kazan had done Pinky, which is one of the first explorations of, you know, race and um, biracialness in America. Of course, a streetcar named Desire in 1951. Pinky was 1949. A streetcar named Desire in 1951. On the Waterfront, also written by Schulberg, and East of Eden in 1955. So the 50s were his decade. You know, it was a time when he was creating some very high art on the cinema. He's also known for uh, his plays and performances and creations on Broadway. And so he and Schulberg, another big heavy hitter, partner in A Face and the Crowd. It's based on Schulberg's short story. And they take this short story, um, I think it becomes a play, and then eventually becomes this movie. And the movie wasn't well received uh, at its premiere. You know, it was kind of underrated, it kind of fell off the radar. But since then, it's become one of those classic films that people go back to, not, not only because of the great acting, the breakout performances, you have Lee Remick. You have Andy Griffith, you have, um, you know, Mathau, you have all this great talent um, coming to the silver screen and these two great artists in the director Kazan and the writer Schulberg coming together again to produce something that really does speak about what America is and what it became the idea of cult of personality. And so you may know Kazan, you know, he testified before the House on Un-American Activities in 1952. Um, you know, and Schoberg being a Jew and a communist, having to deal with the Red Scare and facing the growing influence of both radio and television and for its control over the American people. And so some people have postulated that this character of Lonesome Rose is really based on real life people. For instance, Huey Long, um, Will Rogers, these larger than life characters who, you know, Will Rogers at one time had 40 million Americans listening in to his show uh, before he died and passed out of the limelight. So they were reckoning with the idea of these large personalities.
coming to us weekly with propaganda, with advertisements, with jingles, with political uh, concerns and uh, propaganda. And so I think Kazan and Schulberg saw it as dangerous if misused. And we certainly see that in Lonesome Rose. And some critics have said, it, you know, it relates to the worship and the cult of personality in America, right? Um, it's predictive when you watch it of a Donald Trump who is Lonesome Rose at his absolute, at his absolute worst because he doesn't have a public that is shocked by his antics and by his words. He has a public that is hungry for them, that is eager to be led by them. Um, and so, and then we look at the real life figures that Lonesome was based on. One can see, one can definitely see the connection. Um, we talk about LBJ, whom both Schulberg and Kazan studied, studied his walk. They studied his mannerisms. And I hadn't known that when I had first seen a face in the crowd. It never occurred to me that it was based on a real person, partly because we're looking back to the 50s and, you know, we're looking back, um, affording them a, a type of innocence. But no, they studied LBJ. And now I can't get it out of my head. When you watch this movie, it's going to be hard for you to divorce LBJ from the character of Lonesome, Lonesome Rose. Um, also, some people have suggested that, that Billy Graham could have been um, the basis for this character in Rose. Billy Graham being America's preacher. Billy Graham having voiced in his later years some regrets about his stance on civil rights, on uh, about integration, having stood on the sidelines while MLK and others bore the brunt of the civil rights movement, having not brought white Christians into an understanding biblically and politically of what it meant to be a God-fearing nation. Having the ear of you know, five or six presidents from Eisenhower all the way to, you know, Reagan, America's preacher, his large, vast following, whom he couldn't steer to uh, a moral rightness on the most pressing issues of the time. And if we look at what the Grams have become, and his son, there's some um, falling away there. So I can definitely also see Billy Graham. And of course, Huey Long makes a lot of sense because he was, uh, for some, a fascist, for some, um, an anarchist progressive who wanted to redistribute wealth in his country, who wanted health care, who would have been like the Bernie Sanders of his time times 20. Because remember, Long was assassinated. 
So he brought with him a lot of fear of his votes, a lot of fear of how he could manipulate those votes. Um, FDR really had to contend with Long and make some backroom bargains with him because of his power. And so I'm not surprised that because of his advocacy for the poor, because of his um, anti, you know, oil stance, um, pro-people stance, that he was killed. And so a martyr to some, um, a demagogue, fascist to others. But I could certainly see Lonesome and Huey Long as well. So it seems like to me, Kazan and Schrilberg took these personalities and took their influence on America and offered a critique and a face in the crowd, right? Because often these personalities do appear to those of us on the outside to have come from nowhere, to just suddenly be there. And of course, if you followed the arc of Trump, you know, he... Um, was very good at the art of the deal in terms of marketing himself, of using that Trump name, of using his wealth that was left for him uh, from his dad to build a brand. And a brand that now we're reckoning with, right? Even after his presidency has ended, the havoc that he has unleashed on the American public, I don't think we fully understand as of yet. Keeping in mind that he's given voice to an electorate in, an electorate in America that was largely unheard. And that's the fault of all involved. You cannot leave large swaths of the American public um, in silence. And without regard, what's going to come to you is going to be its ugliest face, right? And we see that Hillary Clinton called them despicables, but really they are um, forgotten. They're the waste people of the 1930s, of the turn of the century, who've been in America and who in many ways have been left out and who have been prevented from having solidarity with Blacks, Latinos, you know, LGBTQ populations, women, because of their whiteness. It's been used against them in the most egregious ways. And so we hear in that snippet at the beginning of the podcast, uh, Lonesome really caught on the hot mic and this is in the day before hot mics right he is caught lambasting and ridiculing and downgrading his audience and the difference between the audience then is that they were appalled and they instantly turned on him the audience now applauds its own denigration it's not self-aware enough to know that it's being ridiculed and demeaned and denigrated the way the audience of Lonesome Rose was. And that's very telling when you think about the art of political astuteness in American politics that we have 
a segment of the population whose elected leaders are playing them and playing them openly in the most vile fashion. And as we begin to see them retreating somewhat from Trumpism and for, you know, MAGAism and from January 6th, there's still that diehard cohort that has not given up the ghost, as it were. We just found out a couple of days ago about Fox News having known that Trump's allegations of a stolen election were false from the very moment that he uttered the words and yet chose to support those words, those allegations, and give reason and rhetoric to them, a la Lonesome Rose. Because why? Because power. Because keeping this base in your pocket that you can shake for a few dimes and quarters when needed, that you could stoke into white grievance, that you can stoke into uh, an electorate who's going to vote your way, who's going to vote against their own self-interest. And so I think when we look at a face in the crowd and what Schroberg and Kazan were presenting was this danger of the media, the danger of an unexamined force that could hold sway with the American public. And so Lonesome, in that little clip that we listened to, is talking about his power to take swill and make it into caviar for his listeners. And he's doing so with, um, with relish and delight and with um, contempt. For his audience, and so in the movie, as he's saying this, it 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 focuses on lonesome, 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 and then it switches to the audience member, whose twisted face, whose silent repose, as they listen to this, almost disbelieving. Then it goes back to lonesome, delivering two minutes basically of but really can be termed hate speech towards his audience. Was the next film that Bud, Schulberg, and Kazan did after the great success of On the Waterfront. And like we pointed out earlier, with Billy Wilde's success at Sunset Boulevard, this next film, Ace in the Hole, not ready for these films. Right. The follow-up films. The follow-up. They weren't ready for them. And both films, uh, great films, facing the crowd, Pacheski would not have done uh, Network. I mean, there's a direct cor- right. a correlation between it. And the thing about this that was amazing to me is that they had the crystal ball. So many things they, ex- they, they dealt with here didn't come to fruition too many years later but it happened the power of TV look at this you look at uh, Andy Griffin great so you heard a little snippet there of Spike Lee the great director uh, speaking to the importance of a face in the crowd in American cinema 
and uh, of course, his prescient nature for all that came after, and of course, for launching the uh, extraordinary career of Andy Griffith, who went on to be America's um, sheriff and America's lawyer, and Matlock and uh, Andy on, uh, you know, and Mayberry. So, um, Spike says that, you know, these things couldn't be predicted, but I think mm, if you look at history, if you look at some of the tidbits I just shared with you, they were predicted. And I think this is what uh, Kazan and Schroberg were really trying to warn the American people about. And like Spike Lee said, they weren't ready for and didn't go see. You know, this wasn't a, a blockbuster hit. Um, like on the waterfront was. And this is coming, as Spike Lee just said, after On the Waterfront, a phenomenal success. I mean, Marlon Brando, ugh. But I think it speaks to, you know, when you think about the Red Scare, um, how much of McCarthy was televised, right? And on the radio, when you think about the Hollywood blacklisting, when you think about the number of untold suicides and uh, desperation that followed the un-American, you know, House on Un-American Activities hearings, the lives that were ruined, people who just never worked again in Hollywood, who's, you know, had to write under pseudonyms, who, you know, had to, had to beg for work. Um, very real consequences of fascist, demagogue-like behavior as seen in a face in the crowd. So I think if you're a, a political junkie, if you like uh, a good rags to riches story, if you like social commentary, then this film really has it all. And remember, it's coming from uh, a Schroberg short story. So it's textually based and it's beautifully rendered uh, on the large screen. Patricia Neal is also one of the actresses in the um, in the film, and I think that a movie like this, all the president's men coming after, uh, even um, JFK coming after, these really in depth looks at uh, what really are American history in a sense. For the lit head gives us um, a great contextual basis for our unease at certain things in this society, right? We joke about, you know, billion-dollar athletes and, you know, $55,000-a-year teachers shot in the classroom by six-year-olds. And the imbalance of power in this country and we talk about how someone like Trump, who was so egregiously unqualified for the office of president and still shows daily why he is a threat to American democracy, how someone like that could capture the American public and not just poor whites, you know, middle class, African-Americans, uh, the military, he had his fingers in all those pies. He was speaking a language for a lot of different voices. And I think to our own detriment, we just throw it off as um, 
ignorance. It's more than just ignorance. When people put their careers on the line, their names on the line, and stand behind someone like that, I think we've got to ask ourselves how the cult of personality becomes a destructive force. And then we get into things like Jim Jones. We get into things like Waco. We get into things, I mean, the sickest end of the spectrum of the cult of personality, right? And being media savvy and clever in that way, sex cults. I mean, it's just, it's a lot to take in. So I really want to recommend for you, if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube, the full movie. Go watch it. And if you have seen it, watch it again with these nuances and this social critique and this social commentary in mind. Remember that Kazan named names before the committee. He never apologized. He said that if he had to do it again, he he would name names, that it was really the lesser of two evils. And think about how you know, we have this cancel culture. Person makes a a blurb statement or, or does something, and we attempt to erase them. In a sense, who gets erased? Who gets to come back? Who gets forgiven? Who never gets forgiven? Right. Mel Gibson came back. Um, Louis C.K. is back. Weinstein and R. Kelly, fortunately, are not. <laughs> but you never can tell. Every indictment thrown at Trump, every attempt to hold him accountable for the egregious January 6th insurrection and incitement to violence at the U.S. Capitol has come to naught. Liz Cheney, whom, you know, I don't agree with her politics, God knows, but who did the right thing by America, lost her her position. So we have to be careful. I mean, this whole anti-wokeness by DeSantis, I mean, DeSantis and Lonesome Rose, Compare and contrast. Do the Venn diagram. A lot in that center. A lot in those overlapping edges there. Using the media. Using his pulpit. To work. Disastrous and racist and homophobic and un-American policies and we're wondering when is this open mic moment? When is he going to be caught doing and saying something so egregious that he's finally held to account? But lately we haven't been very successful at really canceling what needs to be canceled. Lying congressmen sworn in and serving 
congresswomen who have advocated for a national divorce, a civil war. Not held to account, not canceled. Child molesters and groomers. Proven. Follow the receipts, follow the money. Still serving. And when are we going to be hit so hard across the face of our own narrow stupidity that we finally bring the house down? And the sad thing is, in the face of the crowd, the final scene, um, the antagonist of Lonesome, who is broken at that moment, acknowledges, oh, you'll be back. It hurts now. You're, you're on the bottom now, but you'll be back. Maybe not as great, but you'll be back. Because there's always a segment of the public that feeds off of and desires that very hateful thing that needs to be canceled permanently. So, movies as text, go get it. A Face in the Crowd, a wonderful film. And if you haven't watched On the Waterfront, if you haven't watched Pinky, which I didn't know Kazan had done, they're just excellent. He really created art in the highest form when it comes to the cinema. Thank you guys for listening. This has been Late Night with White. I'm your host, C.D. White. Have a good night.